Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Bible study here. I'm Pastor Thompson. I'll be taking you through some more of the Gospel of Luke this morning. But before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, this is the day that you have made, and we gather here rejoicing in it. We ask that as we dive into your word, you would open our hearts, our minds, our ears, uh, as we hear what you have to say to us today, Lord, uh, and as it informs our lives today in this world and our future with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Good to see everybody. So I understand that last week you all left off in Luke chapter 13. You finished up verse 9, the parable of the barren fig tree. Does that sound about right? All right, good. Good. So we start off here, this woman with a disabling spirit. This is takes us from verse 10 all the way up through verse 17. I'm going to go ahead and read that, and then we'll dive in. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So, there's a couple of things that are happening here in this pericope, this, this set of verses here. This is the last synagogue appearance in the Gospel of Luke that we have. Um, and this woman comes in with this disabling spirit to which she's healed. And the rulers uh, of the Pharisees, their leader of the Pharisees, has a big issue with this. This is not a shocker, right? So this is the, the second Sabbath healing that we have in the Gospel of Luke, um, this, there's a couple of interesting linguistic things here going on. Uh, one of them is, how long has she been with this disabling spirit? So it's 18 years. And if we back up just a little while before in the text, and Jesus is speaking, he talks about the Tower of Siloam falling. And how many people were killed there? 18. It's interesting and I was, I was reading this week, uh, Dr. Just, who's a professor over at the Fort Wayne Seminary and wrote the commentary on Luke, pointed out that, that this, this possibly has a connection in the natural effects of sin in our world, right? Sin causes things like death and sickness. And so we, we see kind of a connection in Jesus' words there between these two uh, pieces of Scripture, these two things that Jesus has spoken. The other neat thing as we, as we look at what he says to this woman is not only that she's healed, but that she's released. 
And we hear that other places when we talk about being chained or being in bondage to sin, death, and the devil, right? And so his, his words here are actually words of release. I release you from that, from that bondage. And, and I think that that's really uh, an important thing to remember. It's not just a physical healing that Jesus has come to this earth to affect. Yes, he does heal people, right? The blind see, the lame walk, the mute speak. But there's something much bigger than that that occurs. Now, on the last day when Jesus gets back, makes all things new, all of that stuff's going to be healed. It's going to be wonderful and beautiful, and those aches and pains and things like that aren't going to be any longer. But in this specific pericope uh, here, the specific verse, we find this language of her being uh, released. And the other, the other thing that I found that's interesting, and I calls her daughter of Abraham, does that strike anyone as an interesting statement? A lot of times we, we hear about the sons of Abraham, right? And it's just the normal language, but this language of daughter of Abraham is kind of unique here. Uh, it, he's including her in that covenant language. She is a part of this. Uh, because at this point, the Pharisee rulers are saying, hey, this is not where you should be doing the healing. It's Sabbath day. Why are you doing this? No, she's a daughter of Abraham. She's a part of this. Now, it wouldn't matter to them whether who it was. They didn't want anybody healed on the Sabbath. And it shows this difference for the Pharisees between knowing Sabbath and understanding Sabbath. And I want to spend a little bit of time there this morning not too much time, but a little bit, because I think for us to truly understand the Sabbath is critical, even for us as Christians today. Now, in the Old Testament, right, God laid out all of these laws about what you're to do, what you're not to do. Here's Sabbath law, and there's a specific day. And so that's what the Pharisees were used to. That's what the people of that day were used to. This is when you do these things, and this is how you do it. Uh, and you've probably been through some Bible studies where we've talked about, well, they built fences around their rules so that you wouldn't break that rule. You know, if, if, for example, if I can't work on the Sabbath day, well, then I need to make sure that the distance from my house to the synagogue and back is 1,999 steps or fewer, because if I take one additional step, that's work. So I need to make sure that I'm close enough for that. And it they had turned the day of rest into a day of work. Are we good at that? Am I, I don't think I'm the only one probably that's good at turning something that's supposed to be restful into work. Is when I was a young parent, I'm still young, but when I was a younger parent and we lived in Florida and when we get ready to go to the beach, we lived about 40 minutes from the beach and the beach is a very restful place. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. But getting two active young boys packed with coolers and towels and all the stuff in the car to get to the beach and then get from the parking lot to the beach, that restful day, there's a lot of stress <laughs> and work that leads into that. Um, and so sometimes we can turn things that are restful into things that are just work and really hard. Uh, and Jesus has, has shared, right, Sabbath was created for man, not man 
for the Sabbath. And so what does it mean, the Sabbath? And this extends into our gathering time on Sunday morning. We've, we've, as a community of believers across time, come to worship on Sunday mornings because that's when Jesus rose from the dead, that, that first Easter, and it's that eighth day. In fact, a lot of baptismal fonts will have eight sides on them because we're baptized into that eighth day, that day of resurrection. And so we gather on that day, and we come together, and we see in our hymnal, we open it up, divine service, setting one, two, three, four, five, right? And we don't pay that title a whole lot of mind all the time. Like, oh, divine service, that's just what we call it. Okay, cool. Let's move on with our day. But when we look at the flow of that service and what's happening there, God is coming to that place to serve his people in word and sacrament. It's truly a place of rest where we come together and the divine comes to us and he feeds us with his word. He feeds us with his true body and blood. He feeds us as we gather. And so, rest on the Sabbath. And it's not something that's new post-fall. When was the Sabbath, when was that Sabbath day established? It was before the fall, right? The seventh day, God rested. Now, he didn't make the Sabbath laws. He didn't enumerate them before the fall. But that day of rest was there before the fall. God created that for his creation because he knew that was what they needed to come and rest in him, to rest in his presence. We gather, we, we say those words of invocation, calling upon his name, this one that we're gathered in. We confess our sins. We, we hear his word read to us. We sing praises to him. The pastor preaches that sermon and proclaims God's word. We return thanks in our offerings. We're fed at the Lord's table with the sacrament. And on those beautiful mornings like this morning at 1045 over here in the sanctuary, when there's a baptism, we get to see a little child that has that beautiful water attached to the word of promise poured over their head as the Holy Spirit is in that place, serving the people, enlarging the family of God. Now, I know you guys are all, almost all grown-ups here. But I, when I would talk to my school students about baptism, I would bring them into the narthex, and I'd say, I can't give you Holy Spirit glasses. But if I could, and you stood here with Holy Spirit glasses on, and you watched this baptism take place, you would be both totally terrified and totally amazed at the same time, because it's not just water and words going on that the pastor's sprinkling here. There's actually the presence of God in this place, doing something real, serving his people, enlarging his family. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so the Pharisees had missed this point. It really, really, really missed this point about Sabbath. They'd made it about work. They'd made it about the things that they could do. And actually, just the next chapter up, this, this issue of the ox or donkey comes up again in Luke 14. Uh, because different, different rabbinical traditions would say, well, 
it's okay for you to do this on the Sabbath. That's not work. So you can go water your ox or your donkey. That's okay. But don't do this. Um, or in, in Luke 14, where it talks about, you know, which one of you, if your son or your ox falls into a well, are not going to go get them out? Well, according to some traditions, they could. According to some traditions, I mean, they could always get the son out. But according to some traditions, that ox was just going to have to hang out there until the next day. <laughs> and we're kind of missing a step. We're kind of missing something here, turning this day of rest into work. And that takes something that was meant to be beautiful for you and I and turns it into something that's just really rough and terrible. And Jesus response to the Pharisees, they can't respond back. So the first time back in Luke 6, when they had this interaction with the first healing on the Sabbath, they were angry. They they were pretty mad. How in the world could this guy come in and heal on the Sabbath? That is not what you do. And this time he does it. And you see at the bottom here in verse 17, and he said these things, all, or as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. Because there's just a little part of them that realizes in what he's saying that maybe they don't have this all figured out. Now, they're not ready to concede just because, just because they maybe know they don't have it figured out. They're not ready to concede just yet. But there's... God, God brings love and justice and mercy into the world, right? And as Christians, we find our rest in Jesus, and that's that idea of Sabbath. When we come together, the, the Matthew 18, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am, there I am in the midst of them. And they have missed this whole boat of the beauty of it, and now they're just humiliated because what do we do with this? What do I do now that all of the things I've stood on for so long aren't the things that I expected? And that idea of expectation actually kind of leads us into the next section here because this, this is a, a dialogue and in places monologue that just kind of goes on as Jesus is teaching here. And so before I step on from this, this idea of this Sabbath healing, this woman with a disabling spirit, does anybody have any questions or comments on that? You guys are listening very well, but I like to talk to All right. Seeing no hands, we'll move forward. So we have this, this, next, this next section right here. It's short. It's three verses here, or four, I guess, 18, 19, 20, and 21. And it's about the mustard seed and the leaven. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. I really appreciate Jesus' use of common elements to explain things. 
Um, it, I think it's so helpful for us today, but also for the people back then. Now, how many of you all garden? Is there any garden out there? So is anyone, does anyone grow mustard greens? Yeah? All right, so, so coming from the South, mustard greens are a thing, right? And it's always funny when we talk about this parable because a lot of times down where I'm from, you're like, oh, mustard seed and you grab it, but this is totally different than what they're talking about in Palestine because it grows this, this nice little plant that's you know a couple of feet tall and you cut the leaves off of them, you cook them down. But he's talking about this big tree. It grows 20 feet tall and 20 feet across, but it comes from this tiny seed. And as Jesus is speaking to his hearers here, they know that that seed goes in the ground and it grows. And there's something miraculous about how it goes from this little itty-bitty seed into this huge tree that provides shade and a safe and secure home for all of these birds of the air. And even today, with all of our, our advances in science and biology and, like, and understanding the germination process and just what it takes for that seed to grow, we still can't create from scratch this seed. We might be able to do things to hybridize them and, and different kinds of experiments to change them a little bit, but the miracle of life that's contained in that seed belongs to God and God alone. And that little tiny seed, as he's talking to these Pharisees and, and they're thinking in their mind, this is not what we expected of a Messiah. For the kingdom of God to roll into our lives, this is not what we thought was coming. This little mustard seed, if it was tossed on the ground out in the park over here, you'd probably walk right by it and never even know it was there. And that even makes me think of when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. How many people walked by this unsuspecting stable with this little baby crying in a feed trough and never knew that the Savior of the world was lying there? Because nobody expected for God to send the Messiah into the world in such humble beginnings. That's just not what they were thinking. And yet, over the course of time, this little tiny seed, warmed by the sun, wet by the rains, and fed by the nutrients in the soil as it digs its roots down deep, grows into this majestic, huge tree. And it provides a home and a shade for so many birds and so many animals. You know, when, when our leaves fall down here in just a little bit, hopefully after we get some good fall color, you see all of those squirrel nests and birds nests that are all through the tree that throughout the year you miss. It's there, but you can't see it because they're covered with green leaves, full of life. And so the kingdom of heaven, when he says, what shall I compare it to? It's like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree. Starting from these humble and unexpected means, grows into this huge and beautiful thing that encompasses so much. And when we think about that tree growing, who determines how fast that tree grows? If I have a tree in my yard, I might be able to add some fertilizer to it to nourish it. So it might, 
maybe the leaves get a little bit greener. I might, might need to add some different nutrients here and there, but I don't get to control how fast that tree grows. And that's something, as, as we read this, I think, as Christians, we have to understand. Sometimes, as God's working through these humble means, like a seed, to grow his kingdom, and it's not, not growing just like we think it should, it's not growing as fast as we think it should, or in some cases, we feel like maybe it's moving backwards in some places. Have we ever felt that way? Sometimes that happens, right? It's growing exactly as God intended it to grow. And we can't forget that. And it doesn't take much. And that's where it comes to this next part of this passage. When he says it again, what am I going to compare it to? The kingdom of God. It's like leaven that a, a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, we know that I can take this, this little, you know, one or two or three cups of flour and I add just a little bit of yeast in there with some warm water and some sugar and it gets bubbling. And before you know it, if you don't watch it close enough, right, that hodol ball comes and erupts out of the bowl and you're picking it back up in there and punching it down to knead it. That little yeast is actually a fungus, right? That little, that little fungus, that little baker's yeast, even though there was just a little bit of it, worked throughout all of that flour, created such a tremendous difference. A tremendous difference in that whole loaf, that little bit of leaven. And this, this, this is an interesting passage because Jesus also does what? He, talks, he says that the Pharisees have leaven too. Right? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And so, in a little bit of a teaching moment here, we can say, there's leaven out there. You're going to be leavened by something. And it only takes a little bit of that leaven to affect the whole batch. Right? Um, but here, in that kingdom of God way, these small things, these small actions, small words, and unseeming and unsuspected way in which God broke into our world, his kingdom grew. And I always, I, I really enjoy looking back through history and seeing this because here, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. All right, this is a part of that travel narrative in Luke. So he's heading to Jerusalem. He set his eyes there. He knows what's coming. The disciples are still confused, but he knows they don't know where this is all going. I mean, they think they know, but they don't. And we can look back through history and say, that little seed, that little bit of leaven across the centuries, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it grew tremendously, right? At, at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Wow, there's some growth. At other times, when the church is being persecuted and it seems to be shrinking back and, and we can't see how is this growth, yet God, through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the world, prevails again and again and again. And so, as we think about these things, 
This is one of those one of those humility moments, right? We want to we want to remember that God works through humble means to accomplish His purposes. Sometimes it's big. Sometimes it's really big and out there. But a lot of times, that little seed, it's that little bit of leaven that's at work in the world around us. Um, And we have to watch our own sinful nature to say, God, why aren't you doing this bigger and faster? That's the way it's supposed to be. But his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And I think that, that remembering that is really important in our daily walk with him. Any comments, questions on this? Yes. I'm kind of, kind of confused because it says in, in right at the beginning of that verse, he said, therefore, referring to the this episode with healing on the Sabbath. Yes. And it's hard to see the link. He seems to be referring back into that. Yeah. It's hard to see what the so, so that therefore, at the beginning, so the, the, the comment was, it's hard to see the linkage between the beginning of verse 18 and the verses that went before, so the healing of the woman with the disabled spirit. And so he is, I think he's making a linkage between their lack of understanding, because they're, they're looking at everything through the letter of the law and saying, this is the way it's supposed to be, you know? Now, they didn't go back and look at Leviticus 12 to 15. Those are four long chapters. But if you go in there, there's nothing in Sabbath law about not healing on the Sabbath. And I think that when Jesus connects back to that, he's pointing out that God works through these humble means, that God works in these unexpected ways. And so you think you have it figured out, guys, but you don't. <laughs> you... you, you you, you need to reevaluate the way you're looking at this. Um, and, and that was a good catch. So that therefore, yeah, that's a connecting, that's a connecting statement as he's working through this. Because you're going to find as we move through chapter 13 here, this is kind of a continuing conversation that he's having. Yes. It's not like he's saying the kingdom of God is not like that. Yes. Yeah. You thought I was going to ride in on a, on a, big white battle horse and throw off your Roman overlords and it was going to be all good. That's not what I'm here for. Right? Um, and Which is different. They were expecting that. They were not expecting the Messiah to come in and accomplish salvation, break into history, uh, kind of, we say break in history ahead of time, knowing that, you know, he broke in exactly where he was meant to, right? But then ascending to prepare a place for us. And so we live in the now, not yet, right? The kingdom of God is here, and the kingdom of God is coming. Does that make sense? That's one of those fun things, now, not yet. Because it's... That's right. Yes, that's why he wrote these things. And, and that is a beautiful, another beautiful gift. I can't hit the microphone. Another beautiful gift that he gives us that we can read all about his plan of salvation for us here um, in a way that Luke couldn't because he was still in the process of writing it. Or the Pharisees who are only looking at the Hebrew scriptures and saying, well, this is what it says here. Or, you know, 
So it was. It was. Well, they had not everything. They had. They were. They were doing what they felt was the right thing to do in order to maintain what they had. Um, and so the unfortunate thing is, is as they did that, they looked less and less strictly to what God had said and more and more to what they thought about it. And that's why the, the Sabbath healing is a great example. All of the different cleanliness and uncleanliness laws and healing and things like that that you find in Leviticus 12, 13, 14, and 15, I mean, they give you periods of time, right? If this happens, you're unclean for this long. Or if this happens, you're unclean for that long. This is what you do in that case. But never once in any of those chapters is anything mentioned about the Sabbath. There's no prohibitions there to someone becoming clean on the Sabbath. And so they have said, yeah, we don't, like, we, we don't want anybody to work on the Sabbath. But they had extended that out into things that were essentially their opinions about what it was rather than what God had actually said was a Sabbath law. And so that's, and that's where it becomes a work and not a rest because when I have to start making up the rules about things, then I've got to worry about whether I'm right or wrong. Then I've got to worry about whether I'm seeing things the way they're supposed to and how I'm making sure they get done the way I want them to get done. And suddenly I get to the end of the rest and I'm like, well, that was a pretty tiring rest. Not restful at all. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And physical. Right. That's an excellent point. So the comment was that in, in this moment here, in this time, in this conversation, this healing of this woman was a demonstration of the coming of the kingdom of God. This physical, this spiritual healing that's taking place uh, right here. And something that totally shocked the Pharisees, right? And, but what was, the, what was the daughter of Abraham's response? Rejoicing, right? Rejoicing. It was it was a joyful day because I mean that's kind of how we should meet the coming of God. Just good advice when Jesus comes riding back in on the clouds. That's a day of rejoicing for us as Christians to glorify God. Right? All right. Anything else? All right. Seeing none. The narrow door. The narrow door. So this right here will take us a few more verses. Let's go ahead and read this and we'll dive in. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. 
Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I did not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So this is just a continuation here. We're, we are moving forward in this, in this same kind of conversational space that Jesus has been in here. And he starts talking about this narrow door. And the way it opens up is he's, he's continuing his move toward Jerusalem, right? Verse 22, he continues teaching in the towns and villages, right? As he's on his way there. And someone asks him this third person question. Are, are those who will be saved few? Will, will those who are saved be few? And so Jesus, as he does, he has a, a you know, he has kind of a pattern of flipping things around just a little bit. And so instead of just saying yes with a simple answer or no with a simple answer, he turns the question around to make the, the person asking the question maybe have a little introspective thought about it. And so he talks about this, this wide or this narrow gate, right? And he so he says that when the master of the door shuts it, many will be left outside. And they're saying, hey, we were there with you. We were eating with you. And he's going to say, I don't know you. And so what, what, does, what does this mean? Right? There's a divide between knowing and understanding. There's a divide between knowing and believing. And this also shows, towards the end of this, this great reversal in Luke. But but his point is that it's by believing in him. It's not all of these other external things. Um, and we can get really, really caught up in that. And I wanted to read you guys a quote. This is from, from the commentary on this. In the life of the Christian, then, one must ask, before you levy words of condemnation against others, have you examined yourself? The walk of the Christian is a walk of, of daily repentance, of yeshuv in the Hebrew, of turning from things of this world and towards God. And something that had been common and is still common in our day, how many of us like to rely on ourselves? Who likes to ask for help? Anybody? I knew if I asked something to where you wouldn't raise your hands, you wouldn't. You guys did a great job. We don't like to ask for help. We like to be self-reliant. Um, and so we want the checklist. We want to know what I need to do to fulfill all righteousness, so to speak. <laughs> and this is why I'm speaking to myself, too. <laughs> well, thank you. We do. We, we need it to hear it daily, right? This This gospel of God speaking into our lives because too often we end up relying on ourselves. We look to our own selves for 
deliverance from all of the things. And whenever I come across a passage like this and it, and it points to this narrow door and this idea of trusting in Christ, it makes me think back to the Old Testament almost every time. Because when we go through that Old Testament narrative and all of the events recorded there, inevitably, when the king or whoever is in charge at that point in time has a struggle and they just decide, hey, this is what I'm going to do about it, it typically turns out poorly, right? Hey, I've got an idea. This is how we're going to fix it. Nope, that's not what works. The other times, when they go to the Lord in prayer, when they listen to what God has to say about it, and they follow what God has to say about it, it usually turns out pretty good. And I think about the same thing here, because in our lives today, we are more hurried than probably most periods of history. It's not that other periods of history have not been hurried or not been busy, but I think there's a difference between busy and hurried. And when we get hurried, we kind of close in and try to figure out how we can get all the things done because I just have to get all the things done. I have to make sure this, that, and the other. And before you know it, we can't pay attention to anything else. And you get to the end of the week and you don't know how you missed all the things that you missed or you got them all done and you just fall into bed and you need a whole weekend of sleep to recover for Monday. What are we hurrying about? Well, and that's, and that's exactly it. We're hurrying about a lot of different things. And for every single one of us, it might be different. Right for the young family, we might be hurried because we play on, you know, four different soccer teams, or we have different, you know, musical engagements that we're involved in, or it could just be that, you know, mom works out here on 270, dad works in the city, the kids are at school out at Lutheran South, and and just by nature of having to drive, we're constantly moving somewhere, and there's never a stillness. Um, I, I struggle with that. I don't sit still well. And when I'm forced to sit still, it's really hard. Really hard. But if I can sit still long enough to relax into sitting still, you know, that be still idea, there can be a beauty in that, uh, especially when I'm taking that time with God, right? And so, but we, we do, we hurry for all these different things. And sometimes it's busyness in pursuit of things, right? I want that next promotion. I want to make sure that I get a spot on the team. I want to make sure that I don't miss on, miss out on the deal on that, whatever it is that they're selling down at the whatever store. Um, and so we find ourselves chasing all these things and relying on ourselves, and then we rely less and less on God and His provision. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't go out and work and we don't like take care of our families and things, but sometimes we get so hurried that that divide between understanding God's provision in our lives and understanding what, we, what, what role we have, right? And the role that we have is to be good stewards of what He's given us, 
But to be good stewards, we need to be pointing to him first and foremost. And that's a really, it's really critical for us in our lives as Christians. Because this, what Jesus is talking about here is this end times feast, right? He's saying now is the time. You know, he's, you pointed out earlier, you know, he's given us his word. This is a time where we have to come together. We learn about him. We call upon him in prayer and praise. We acknowledge our sinfulness. We receive that forgiveness and say, God, you've got this. Not only do we, not only do we confess our sins and receive forgiveness for ourselves, but we also forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, that's another part of this narrow gate or narrow door walking is understanding that I, as a poor, miserable sinner, am no better or no worse than the next poor, miserable sinner that stands next to me. And so if God can forgive me, well, then certainly these other people warrant his forgiveness and his blood covered their sins as well. And so we have this, this beautiful picture right here, I think. I mean, it's, it's beautiful if you're in Christ, right? It's a beautiful picture of resting in him. And I'm going to continue that, that Sabbath theme, right? To say, I don't need to work to get through this door. What I need to do is rest. And here's another quote for you guys. This is, this is kind of the, the conclusion of this section in the commentary I found, and I liked it. So what should we do? Baptism, in the name of Jesus, that's mine. Baptism in the name of Jesus. Of repentance to the forgiveness of sins with the gift of the promised spirit provides all that is necessary for entrance. It's that simple. We can get really complicated with how to get in. But when you were little and that pastor held you and poured that water over combined with the words of promise and you were marked as one of God's forgiven children, and the grace of God poured over you, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in your heart, guess what? That's it. And that's what we need to remind ourselves of regularly. Exactly. You were passive, right? You didn't. So the comment was, when water got poured over me, I really didn't know what was happening. And you're exactly right. And that's the beautiful thing about baptizing is it's not the work of the person getting baptized. It's not even the work of the pastor. It is God, the Holy Spirit in that place coming to live in that person and mark them as God's forgiven children. He's been really kind to me and let me live a long time. And finally, I got the message from you. Yeah. And I try to live in God's will. And, and that's right. He, he works in his own time, right? Just like that mustard seed grows into a tree at his determined pace. And it grows in our lives the same way. And some days we can rest in that really easily. Would you agree? I am God's own child. I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ. And then there's other days where it's really hard, really hard to rest in that. 
But that is exactly what it is. You've been baptized into Christ. That's what it takes. It's not about any of these other things that we want to make it about. Now, what we get to do with that is we get to rejoice. We get to glorify God in all that we say and do as best we can as still sinner saints. But what a joyful thing to not have to pursue the love, grace, and mercy of God, but to have that poured upon you and to be inside of you. That's tremendous. Any comments on that? Thoughts? Yes. It's a narrow door. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's narrow because it's only Yes. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, it's narrow because it's Jesus. And that's in the Old Testament law, right? They had to, you need to do all of these things. These are the things you need to do. You've got to bring this sacrifice here, that sacrifice there. You can't do this on this day or that day. You know, every so often you have to do this. And there are all of these checklists to complete. And Jesus is saying, I'm the end of the checklist. Those were all temporary things. I am the perfect fulfillment of this for all time. The checklist is over. Rest in my forgiveness. Rest in my grace and mercy. And if you rest in the law, you're not going to be able to get through the door because you're going to be carrying all that baggage with you, knowing that no matter how hard you try, you can't perform it perfectly. That's absolutely a wonderful comment. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Maybe you just answered the words that you just talked about that, that uh, is really preaching a lot to the to the leaders, yeah, Pharisees at the time. But all these curriculums, particularly this part about the narrow door, it's a lot of law. Oh yeah. And there's except for the healing of the woman, mm -hmm. the disabled woman, right? Which not too much gospel. Curriculum. Yeah. So that's a that's a great comment. Right. So that's an excellent comment. The comment was, it seems like, you know, as these pricopies string together, as Jesus is walking around teaching, there's an awful lot of law going on here. There's an awful lot of law. And you're absolutely right. And his primary audience in much of this are these, these teachers of the law, right? The Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers. Uh, and if we and if we go back to confirmation class, right? What's the function of the law? The law kills, right? Right? It shows us our sin, right? First, second, and third use, right? That second use, the law shows us our sin. It's a mirror. And I think I, I love that you made that comment because I think Jesus's recognition here for these teachers of the law is: you guys are teaching the law. But you also need to see the law in your own lives and what that means. And so he's using a lot of that to try to convict them and say, you guys don't get it. You're missing the boat. Because if we just, if, if he was to go in there and just slather on gospel to these guys, it, 
the heart change probably wouldn't get affected. Now, I can't say that I wasn't there, and I'm also not God, so not my job to change hearts. But I think Jesus is, yeah, he's heavy law there. And sometimes that happens in our lives, right? There's times in our lives where I, I am baptized into Christ, but there's times in my life where my wife needs to speak the law into my life, right? Because that's what I need to hear. <laughs> well, she, she's good at it anyways. <laughs> but there's other times where I really need that gospel. And I think Jesus is at a point in his teaching here as he's making his way toward Jerusalem where the people he's talking to, they need the law because they think they have it. And they're holding on to the law in the ways that they think the law should be. And so he's, he's applying that law, that law in that way because that law kills right? And the gospel makes alive, and which is what happened, right? That woman with the disabling spirit, she's healed, and she glorifies God. She's rejoicing in that, and it's a beautiful thing. But thank you. That's a really great, great kind of tie together for this whole, you know, narrative that's going on as Jesus is cruising on down the road towards Jerusalem. Yes? Alright. So, um, strive to yeah. enter through the narrow door. And I think about Paul's uh, words in Philippians, work right. your salvation with fear and trembling. Right. That sounds, I'm not going to say work, but it's right. like activity. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. So the, the verb, right? The strive. In this in this passage, or the work out your work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it does right. It sounds a little bit work related, and in some sense, there is an active part in the life of the Christian because my baptism, my forgiveness, my salvation is completely accomplished by God. I've got no part in that, right? The the Greek in the New Testament talks that uses the word necros, like dead corpse, right? Dead in my sins and my transgressions. I'm made alive in the waters of baptism. The old Adam is drowned. The new one comes out of the water. But is the life of a Christian a life of daily repentance? Am I making myself more saved as I repent for my sins? And the answer is no, right? I'm not making myself any more saved, but it's a wrestling, right? And so there is, there's not an active part in the life of a Christian of pursuing salvation at all. But there is an active part in our lives of wrestling with the effects of sin in our world, right? And, and ultimately, someone can choose to reject God. Someone can choose to turn their back on God, walk away. Um, but the gift has been given. The salvation has been accomplished. And that's not... So we don't want to confuse any of those activities with pursuing salvation. Because if it's Jesus plus me in any percentage, I lose. Right? It's 100% Jesus. Oh, man, that's... We don't have enough time to summarize that one, but that's a good conversation to have. I would say, so you are fully justified at, at, at uh, baptism, right? Right. When water pours over, that justification happens, and sanctification along with it, okay? 
Justification, sanctification. Now, is sanctification complete? Sanctification is complete. Is it also ongoing? Yes. And so here's, this is the hard part. So <laughs> I love that you, you just opened the can of worms for me right there. And I'm saying, I don't know that we have enough time to unpack that. But it's, it's now and ongoing, right? So your sins are gone. When God looks at you, he looks at you through eyes of the cross. And so those sins are not there. They're gone. Not even, it's not even that they're just you know, washed away down here on the floor, as far as the east is from the west. And in the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in you, that sanctification has been accomplished. You have been made holy, but you're still a sinner, right? You're a sinner saint. And so the life of the Christian, it's this daily walk of repentance, is this continual being made holy, right? And it doesn't mean that I'm holier than anybody else. That's not at all what that means. But... We are. Right here. We are. And, and we're, but we're looking to God's word. Our striving is not a turning on ourselves. It's, a, it's that daily walk of repentance. It's turning to God, turning to his word, being reminded daily of his promises, and resting there, finding Sabbath in Jesus. Not in saying, you know, did I do enough things to make God happy today? Right? Because... If we're not resting in his word, in the truth of the promise, then all of the things we do are filthy rags, right? Because if I'm not resting in him and his promise, then I'm resting in myself or something else. And it can be as good as I want it to be, but it's not going to be that good thing. And so, so there is an active sense to it, but it is kind of taking the roundabout way there, but it's the active sense of turning to God, not the active sense of pursuing salvation, right? Resting in his promises, finding that Sabbath where Jesus is in places like this. Because really a lot of it is striving away from the sins of the world and saying, I'm striving to not rely on myself. I'm striving to not think that all of these things that don't matter eternally actually matter, right? Um, and that's another one that's a lot of gray area. We like black and white, clean-cut lines, right? But there are things that, like, my family re- relies on me, right? If, if I'm not at school to pick up Jonathan from school, he's walking home. And so that's something that that's an active thing I have to do, but I, as my vocation, as I rest in God's word and say, what have you called me to do? You've called me to be a husband, a father, a pastor, a Christian, all of these things. That's one of the things that I, I mean, that is active, but that's just one of the things he's called me to do. That's not a, a pursuit thing, right? Although sometimes I do have to pursue my children. <laughs> yes. It would appear that that is associated with all he's doing in this pericope seems to be saying who's not going to be there. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a lot of law there, right? It's by striving into the narrow door, he's sort of saying he needs to be complacent about following the set of rules. He was sort of saying strive, but I, I think it's more about not being complacent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
And so it's about not being complacent. It's about our attitude is what you're saying, right? And, and that's it. When we get complacent, do we rest in God's word much? We don't. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it is. It has a lot. There is a lot of law in this. But there's some beautiful nuggets of gospel that remind those of us that have been baptized into Christ who we are, whose we are, and the hope and the future that we have in Him. Any more clarifying? Because those, those are good. I want to make sure I answered questions. And if, if not, we can talk afterwards too, or we can maybe do a whole session on that. Just to kind of round it out, that part of our daily repentance after we're baptized is not making that choice to consciously reject our baptism and walk away from it. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, so so it is it is a choice to not walk away from God, right? That that is that's absolutely an accurate statement. You're baptized, you're secure, but you can walk away from God. People do that; they reject the gift, um, and so that is a part of that daily walk of repentance. Uh, repentance and. Um, I forget my Greek word, but the Hebrew word is yeshuv, right? And it's like a physical turning, right? And so this daily act of turning away from things of the world into God. Um, but turning works both ways, right? And so, yeah, that daily walk is turning towards him and not away from him. He's already called you. He's already accomplished that salvation. You are his. But it wouldn't be love if he held you there against your will and said... You're with me. You can't go anywhere. He said, you're with me. I'm not going to let go of you. But if you choose to walk away from him, you know, now here's, here's the gospel bit, because I don't want anybody to walk away feeling concerned at all. When you ask a question like that, you didn't walk away from God, right? People that... People that, people that have, have decided to reject the faith and walk away from God don't ask those questions, right? People that are still working, working out their salvation with fear and trembling, right, are asking those questions. And that's important for us to remember because we don't want to ever feel like, you know, if I'm, if I'm doubtful about something, does that mean that I'm not in the fold? Did God lose his grip on me? He didn't, right? You're asking the question, and so you're wrestling with it, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, did I address your questions? Is that good? All right.